Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Today's episode will cover the Algernon Blackwood story, A Victim of Higher Space. This story was published in 1908, and uh, John Silence is an occult detective, and this is nominally an occult detective story. Right, yeah, that will be a topic of discussion for sure. Uh, we should say, right, that this is the first installment in something new that we are doing this year, something I'm very excited about, and that is an entire series on occult detectives. We're going to cover six stories this year. That includes, well, this one, obviously, but also some Karnacki, uh, some Lovecraft. We'll do some Arthur Mackin as well. All of these stories were chosen by our Patreon supporters, and in fact, the theme itself was chosen by our Patreon supporters, because last year we had a series of votes to select two themes for us to devote really about half of our 2023 coverage to, and the big winner was genre. Supporters really wanted us to cover some stories that were part of the same genre. Occult Detective won that vote, though only narrowly. It only narrowly beat out the runner-up, which was uh, Ancient Rituals. And then right behind that, coming in third, very close though, was Stories in Translation. And in all, there were eight genres on the ballot. They were all nominated by our Patreon supporters. Coming in surprisingly low, I mean, at the very bottom, were Cthulhu Mythos stories and then Sword and Sorcery stories. And I was really surprised by this. I actually expected Sword and Sorcery to win because anytime we have a story from that genre on the ballot, it comes in first or second. So that's what I expected was going to win. But uh, just, yeah, no luck for that genre this time. Also, who doesn't love occult detectives? I mean, I'm really looking forward to this year. This story was, I don't know, a charming way to kick kick off the, the genre, kick off the year for this topic. But if you're interested in how you can help us choose the next theme, the next topic, whatever it is for next year, we'll be doing another vote starting in March. So the way you participate in that is to join us on Patreon. Um, and then you get to participate in the stories we read in even the bigger abstract questions of what we're reading. You know, what genre do we cover? What topic do you want us to look at? And we love having your participation in that. It's kind of what makes this whole show work. So please join us on Patreon. Do it before March or do it in March to get your vote in and then stick with us to get all the bonus episodes uh, that we've recorded in on Patreon. There's, I don't know, a hundred of them. <laughs> it's yeah. a lot. Uh, tons of bonus material on Patreon on top of you participating in what we cover on Elder Sign. But let's turn our attention back to this John Silence story. I've had, I guess, some things to say about it so far. It's charming. It's barely an occult detective story. And all of that we'll talk about in the discussion. But at the end of the day, I really enjoyed this story. It, it covers a lot of the tropes that we've gotten used to since Arthur Conan Doyle kicked off Sherlock Holmes, um, but it does something different with them. And so in order to figure out what it does differently, let's get into the recap. Yeah. So as we have said several times already, this is a Dr. John Silence story. And John Silence is famous for being, well, often regarded anyway, as the first occult detective. And of course, occult detective is now a massive genre with, I don't know, hundreds of, of detectives, dozens of them, you know, recognizable by name to uh, readers and, and, and watchers as well. There's a lot of them on screen also. But of course, we have actually met 
John Silence before, uh, several years ago, in fact, when we did two episodes on the first John Silence story called A Psychical Invasion. And this one is the final John Silence story that Blackwood wrote. This one takes place entirely in John Silence's pretty posh house where he works as a consulting psychic detective. And this story begins with a scene that features Silence's new butler, who is a man named Barker. And this scene is meant to be comedic. Uh, Blackwood does some things with accents here, and he characterizes Barker as very nervous about screwing up his new job with all of its bizarre requirements, and uh, also then with the sorts of strange people who show up at Silence's door. And one such person has just now. This is the inciting incident for the story. And Barker is apologizing for letting this man in without getting his name and also for just leaving him in the hall. But he really is a strange or really a bizarre figure. And we'll get to this character in the next section because here... Blackwood is drawing this out a bit to reintroduce us to John Silence and just give us a sense of his home. So we learned that Silence has two drawing rooms where he instructs visitors to wait for him. One is padded and is also stocked with tools that you can use to restrain violent people. This room is for people who are insane. That's the word in the text. The other drawing room is for people who really are having psychic problems. And this one is painted green, or I guess probably it's actually wallpaper, but Blackwood just says that it's green. And it's more of a study and is generally comfortable, except that the chair for visitors is nailed to the ground so that they won't fidget so much because Silence believes that a fidgeting body creates a fidgeting mind, and he wants people to be calm. I felt like he was talking to me here. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, if that doesn't work, uh, the the, the nailed-in chair, if that doesn't calm people down, then Silence has some buttons that will allow him to release a narcotic gas around the chair that will calm this person down. So yeah, at this point, we don't have any plot yet, but Brandon, I think it's worth pausing here just to talk about this setup that Blackwood spends a lot of time on. He really does. I mean, the degree of detail that Blackwood goes into about Dr. Silence's setup here reveals to us that Silence is a man of vast experience in dealing with people who experience themselves severe mental or psychic disturbances. I mean, I'd even go a step further and say that this story relies upon us believing in Silence's experience as an occult detective in order to get to the resolution of the case. But Silence has, through his experience, recognized that there's a category of people who are seeking a psychic healer, but instead are actually insane. Uh, In other words, they don't really qualify for his services, and he's better off restraining them until the experts come along and take them away. And then there's another set of people that require the occasional dose of narcotics, I guess, to make it through (laughs) a session with Dr. Silence. So you know he's learned all the tricks. But I think there's something to be said uh, for Blackwood's consideration of the difference between material causes for mental disturbances, say brain states or uh, imbalances or damage or, you know, situational events that have caused uh, mental disturbances as opposed to spiritual causes. And what this does is, as we've seen 
in every weird fiction story that we've read and commented upon is set up this universe to have a real problem with substance dualism. Um, and speaking of substance dualism here, of the spirit of uh, numinous stuff having real properties that mysteriously acts upon the material world, part of the reason why silence has hired this butler, Barker, is because Barker is a little bit psychic. And so it's clear to us as readers that Silence has hired Barker almost entirely because Barker is psychic. But Barker really wants to be a good butler too, though he seems a little hopeless at it. And this is, I think, where all the comedy comes in in the opening. It's it's pretty funny. Barker's no Watson, but he's a kind of helpful assistant uh, nonetheless. And it's not even clear if he's he's literate. So he wouldn't be writing down uh, the case studies of, of Dr. Silence. But Barker's inability to buttle this guest of silences is due to the fact that this prospective client is going through some real psychic stuff that Barker picks up on. And so ultimately, Silence is really pleased with Barker, and Barker can't understand why, because he's done a terrible job of pleasing his master and so on. And right, what am I saying here? This is a strange opening, to be sure. Uh, it subverts the kind of things we'd expect to see in something like a Sherlock Holmes story, which have been around for about you know 20 years uh, when Blackwood published this story. But you know, we all know the detective needs a companion. Uh, but a detective also needs a case, and and that's about where we're going to go. Right? Yeah, we're going to meet our 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 case, our our character here in in a moment. All of this focus on Barker here, Brandon, which I think you have summed up very nicely, really made me want a like a Downton Abbey style TV show about John Silence's house and household <laughs> or like maybe like an upstairs downstairs style story like we could have read this story under the genre you know well we are reading it under the genre occult detective but we also could have read it under the genre you know British butler stories and uh, yeah. I think it would be a great entry in in that type of study as well there's one more thing I want to bring up about uh, this the the setup here, the physical setup of Silence's house, which is that the the green room, right? The room for people who really need some help or are having some kind of psychical or, or, or supernatural disturbance is that Blackwood tells us that there are paintings by Arnold Birkeland on the, the wall. I don't know if you know this painter, Brandon. He's a, a symbolist painter. I don't know that he's very well known, um, or that's not really quite what I mean, but to the extent that he is well known is as the painter of the very famous painting, The Isle of the Dead, that you and I have actually talked about before when we did uh, Black Corfu by Karen Russell, mostly because I had been listening to Rachmaninoff's uh, musical interpretation of that painting called The mm. Isle of the Dead when we read that story. And I think we talked about it for a few minutes on that episode. But I just wondered what you make of the fact that there's symbolist paintings all over this like greeting room for people who are psychically disturbed. I, it, ha it would have to do something with the the kind of calling people out of their kind of material comfort zone to engage, I suppose, with the the spiritual uh, through 
the medium of symbolist works, I, I guess. I don't know. I, I, I'm ashamed to say I forgot to look into this because I was too busy reading about mathematicians all week. <laughs> and I forgot this painter reference. You, you caught me out, Glenn. Yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to do that. But no, you're right. There's, I mean, there's a lot, as we're going to find here, there's a lot of math stuff that has to be looked up here. And yeah, I mean, I like this painter. I have some history, well, more with the music. I got interested in this painter by way of the music, which I know listeners have heard me say was kind of at least a big component of the soundtrack to the adolescence that I shared with Brent, my co-host over on our, our Neil Gaiman podcast. But uh, anyway, all of that is actually for our, uh, I don't know, soon to be launched 19th century painting podcast. I, I, don't, I don't know if that's really something that's uh, that's going to happen. But yeah, let's go meet the, the client here. Let's go get to this case. So another feature of the Green Study is that Silence has a spy hole where he likes to observe prospective clients before he actually goes in to talk with them. Because when people are in the presence of others, they put on a persona, a, a mask. But Silence, he wants to see who they really are before he start speaking with them. But in this case, it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because the man is aware of being watched. Now, in this case, Silence is not surprised by this. He's been aware that this man is psychically sensitive really from the very start. He even ordered Barker to think happy thoughts around this person. And so Silence goes in and they get to talking. And, and I'm really just going to paraphrase the problem here, though I will say that Blackwood does this all in a, a, a quite lengthy dialogue scene. The man's name is Racine Mudge, which is a fantastic name for a character. And he is the victim of higher space, of the title. And he says as much to Dr. Silence here. And what he means by this, what he means by victim of higher space, is that he has been experimenting with mathematics and geometry, and in doing so has found psychical access to a dimension of space that humans cannot normally experience, and it is called higher space. Now, this part is not news to silence. He also has experimented with higher space, and he knows some things about it. So it turns out, right, that Mudge has come to the right detective. In Mudge's work with all this math and geometry and, and higher space, this all began after he was essentially orphaned and left largely to his own devices with you know, some money to live on. You know, it's a pretty classic Victorian or Edwardian you know, trope here. And it also turns out, though, that maybe Mudge is a reincarnated mathematician, and so he was interested in mathematics and learned it very easily. In fact, he, he knew that what he was doing wasn't really learning, it was remembering. And there is a lot of talk here about how this world that we live in is really something of an illusion, and that once Mudge had access to the fourth dimension, he really started to lose his ability to exist here. And that is why he has come to see Dr. Silence. He's been vanishing into higher space without any control over it. And, well, he, he wants to get control over that. So, okay, that was the plot in a nutshell, though I have left out uh, a lot, maybe all of the details that actually really make this a rich story. Yeah, one thing you left out is that Mudge is somehow both invisible and able to observe Dr. Silence from a, a kind of vantage point that Silence can't himself see. This, I don't know, has a higher space aspect to it, I guess. So when Mudge is peak, 
So when silence is peeking in his little peephole, Mudge isn't present until he slowly begins to appear in the form of a line that goes perpendicular to some point of reference that silence is using. Uh, now, I'm very much out of practice with mathematics of any kind, or I'm really seriously uneducated in the field, depending on where you're standing. But so much of the mathematics talks in the story is above my head. But we are going to talk about it now. There's there's a few things I want to point out about the consequences of Mudge getting into experimental math. Because, uh, you know, I've seen the Thor movie, and I've also read A Wrinkle in Time. <laughs> I know, in other words, yeah. Let's talk about higher space. I'll start with a quote from the text. This is how Dr. Silence describes higher space after reassuring Mudge that there is help for him and that Mudge has come to the right space. Uh, Dr. Silence says this from uh, his own experience. Higher space is no mere external measurement. It is, of course, a spiritual state, a spiritual condition, an inner development, and one we must recognize as abnormal, since it is beyond the reach of the world at the present stage of evolution. Higher space is a mythical state. So I, I hope that made sense to you, because that's as clear a description of higher space as we'll get in terms of poetic language or, or, or prosody. But in terms of mathematical language, there's a lot of stuff about the work of Janus Bollier, a uh, 19th century mathematician whose mathematics moved the needle towards abstract reasoning, I guess. Uh, look, I don't know. I'm just going to do my best here. And then there's Johann Carl Friedrich Gauss, who maybe, Glenn, you've heard of because we used to have to degauss our computer monitors. Uh, and that, that is, we had to clear them of electromagnetic buildup. We also get reference to Beltrami and Lab Labachewski, who are mentioned here as well. Basically, all of these mathematicians were essential in shifting geometry away from the coordinates in Euclidean space into non-Euclidean ge geometry. Uh, Dan Simmons has written a great horror novel that that plays with this as well uh, called Song of Kali. And I guess this led to developments in quantum physics regarding mathematics, uh, dealing more dealing with more than a three-dimensional axis. So when we're if you're into this sort of thing and you hear people talk about string theory, this kind of geometry laid the groundwork for 10th and 11th dimensional reasoning, uh, though this is still kind of early in this um, phase to talk about four dimensions, which also laid the groundwork for Einstein's theory of relativity. Right. And of course, in terms of fiction, this story, what, 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 Blackwood is doing here. I mean, this is really, really important for Lovecraft, right? Non-Euclidean is like a phrase that, although it's a perfectly normal phrase for mathematicians and <laughs> physicists, it's a phrase that I think we all associate with Lovecraft, right? And this is a big part of the the tradition for getting us to that point, though. You know, as we, you know, we've seen, right? What Mudge's problem here is is not itself particularly Lovecraftian, right? That if this were a Lovecraft story that it would you know that the story would hinge on what's in that fourth dimension but really what's ha what's happening here it's just that mudge 
is getting trapped over there. He can't really exist in both places, and and that's that's really the extent of the problem. So it's not you know leaning into that Lovecraftianness yet, but nonetheless is an important building block in how we get there eventually. Yeah, exactly. And it it really is interesting the way Lovecraft might have taken an idea like this and made it about what's in this space. Mudge has some fear of the higher dimensional space as well, but you're right to point out the problem is is that he's not really anchored in our reality. Uh, if you're not a mathematician and all this stuff about geometry and plots and uh, graphs and that sort of stuff makes no sense to you, uh, let me try another approach here for what's going on with Mudge. Um, because there is kind of this spiritualist business in the story. You know, Glenn, you pointed out that Mudge intuited all of this mathematical stuff because, hey, past lives are real in this world. And Mudge's past life as a mathematician has borne uh, some influence on his natural abilities now. Uh, but I, I teased Thor and A Wrinkle in Time. I did that on purpose because uh, this story is dealing with something called the Tesseract, which is a big deal in speculative fiction as well in science fiction. Basically, a tesseract is a way of representing four dimensions in three dimensions using two cubes that are connected. This even is too heady for me, but I encourage you to you know look up the Wikipedia page on this or look at some M.C. Escher drawings that play with um, this sort of concept. But one description I read about the fourth dimension on Wikipedia I found pretty helpful. It involves the casting of light onto a body in order to produce a shadow. And so when you cast light on a three-dimensional body, it produces a two-dimensional shadow that really has no substance. But if you cast a light on a four-dimensional body, it would produce a three-dimensional shadow, which for us would maybe be substantial to some degree. That's really hard to say whether or not a shadow could be of substance, but it doesn't matter in a story about uh, the spiritual numinous substances acting on the material world. I don't know. The point is, um, it's inconceivable, really. <laughs> you kind of have to be there in the fourth dimension to make sense of it intuitively, which is also the direction this story goes in, in terms of explanation. Mudge struggles with having these intuitions. He struggles with the kind of reality he's come into as a result of all of this spiritual meddling with non-Euclidean space and going inside of himself, crawling into his navel, perhaps, in order to find the fourth dimension. I don't know. That's the best I can do with uh, a breakdown of this section. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you did a great job. And this is a, certainly a dry run for us covering Lovecraft's story, Dreams in the Witch House, eventually, which which dials this math stuff up to 11. <laughs> so this is our practice episode for that. But okay, so now that we've got that, well, I don't know, under our belt-ish, I guess, let's get to the climax of this story. So the problem is that sometimes Racine Mudge vanishes into another dimension. Fortunately, Dr. Silence knows how to stop that. And, and I don't mean that he can do it for Mudge, but what he can do is give Mudge the insight that this is happening because Mudge doesn't have any formal training in how to access higher space. Because if he did, he would know how to block the entrances. That's the key phrase here. But Silence doesn't have any time to teach Mudge how to do that because Mudge is actually about to disappear. 
And the source of the problem right now, right in this particular moment, what's making him about to disappear is that there is a marching band playing on Silence's street, or maybe really what it's doing is uh, some kind of performance circuit through his neighborhood. But in any case, there is a marching band walking around outside playing the famous march from Wagner's opera Tannhauser. And I don't know if this was a feature of life in Edwardian London, but it certainly seems annoying. Uh, frankly, Brandon, it reminded me of when we used to record together like in my apartment and we would have to pause for the ice cream truck to go by. I'm glad that's all we had to do. I'm glad that that didn't also send you into another dimension where maybe you wouldn't come back from. But uh, yeah, at any rate, the music is untethering Mudge from our reality and he needs some help. But nothing Silence does is enough to keep Mudge from vanishing in this moment. And so that seems like it is the end of the story. But it is not. There's a coda Two days later, Silence gets a telegram from Mudge, who is now in India, and the telegram says that Mudge has blocked the entrances and everything is fine now, and he gives an address in London where messages can reach him, and so the story ends with Silence having Barker send Mudge's hat, an umbrella, to that address so that Mudge can collect them the next time he's in London, because the thing that matters most in uh, in England, I think, is not losing your umbrella. Yeah, a gentleman can never be without his hat and umbrella, I guess. <laughs> so a real <laughs> calming resolution to this story. I agree with you, Glenn. This band is a real menace. Uh, also in Fishtown, apart from fire trucks and ice cream trucks, there was a drum line that would come through the neighborhood led by someone dressed as the Cookie Monster. And that could be a real nuisance too. But as far as I know, they were just a, a bunch of kids raising money for stuff. And no one ever disapparated as a result of their activities. But I really do sympathize with Mudge here. Uh, people have attributed all sorts of things to the vibrations from Wagner's music in the 20th century, uh, rise of fascism, for instance. And it, it really looks like it all started with Racine Mudge here in, in Blackwood's story. Wagner's an easy target, I guess. Uh, I find the resolution to this story also to be pretty hilarious. Not Dakota with the letter from India, which is, is funny, but the resolution being that silence has the cure for what ails Mudge. Uh, Mudge just has got to be less spiritually porous. And Dr. Silence has all the answers for that in the little notebook he uh, made while he was learning to, quote, block the entrances to the higher dimension or the higher space when he was experimenting with it. So that's really great. I mean, there's actually no mystery here and there's nothing the audience can participate in, in solving the problem. And in fact, we don't even get any methodology. It's just the solution is a MacGuffin. And usually the MacGuffin is what drives the plots. <laughs> I don't know. I found that to be pretty fun. Uh, but since this is the story that's kicking off our theme of occult detectives, especially as occult detective mysteries or stories intersect with the weird, this is where I want to start my discussion with this kind of intersection or maybe just going really broad before we get into the story. Now, it's clear that Dr. Silence is an investigator of some kind. He certainly detects things, uh, you know, modes of being, spiritual disturbances. But I wonder, Glenn, when you think of an occult detective in a broad sense, what comes to mind? What kind of character are you looking for? What kind of story? This is a great question, Brandon. I guess the thing I would say first, just to, to ground it here in the story that we've just read, is that it's not this 
<laughs> this is this is probably not my ideal occult detective story, though the first one that we did, A Psychical Invasion, I think, well, still maybe not my ideal, was a lot closer to that. Uh, something that we've talked about, or really someone we have talked about uh, on the network, I think actually it's on a Patreon episode, but it was when we covered a Gene Wolfe story, one of his pastiches of Sherlock Holmes. And in this case, that story really is playing on the other famous or another famous detective, Nero Wolfe, whose whole shtick is that he solves mysteries without ever actually having to leave his home. So you, as a prospective client, go to Nero Wolf, tell him what's up, and he solves the mystery without even having to go on site, which is a fun gimmick for maybe a story or two. But ultimately, I think for my tastes, I want the detective out in the the world. And so I think that's where, for me... I would have liked a little more of that, at least on the you know from the standpoint of the detective side. In terms of the occult side here, though, this really felt more spiritual than occult. And I guess for me, I use occult detective. You know, if someone tells me that uh, you know they're reading or writing an occult detective story, what I take that to mean is you're writing any kind of detective story that's got a supernatural edge to it, right? And that was really, I think, kind of lacking here. I mean, there is something numinous happening, but it's not, there's no sort of supernatural menace here. This is just math gone wrong, right? And and so, yeah, this is kind of, I think, mild uh, in terms of both occult and detective for me. I think, yeah, I think what I'm looking for is less of a gentleman or an aristocratic detective. And we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. We'll kind of dig deep into how this story functions. Uh, but I like the occult detectives who are more influenced by the tough guy detective story or the hard-boiled detective story um, where maybe there's some cleverness involved, but it's more somebody who can uh, brute force their way through a supernatural problem than just kind of sit in their drawing room and, and, and smoke a pipe and um, consider, you know, the substance of things and then it's solved. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think, you know, when I look for an occult to Texas story, I want, I, I think of TV shows like Friday the 13th, which is a bunch of people tracking down cursed objects. Um, like I'm like this concept is something I really love to return to. I like the first two Dresden novels, uh, Harry Dresden novels by Jim Butcher for this, uh, because they're, it's before, Harry Dresden gets super into uh, all the urban fantasy elements, fairies and vampires and their courts and the real powers behind the world. And it's just kind of using magic to stop werewolves or something, you know, or a, 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 a drug dealer of special magic drug, you know, that I like that kind of stuff where it's just a weird or supernatural twist on what was published in the 1920s and 30s by Chandler and Hammett and less so like Sherlock Holmes um gentleman detective with a weird twist though i don't know young sherlock holmes is kind of a great movie and that's an occult detective story so it can work i guess but yeah i like you glenn there are some issues with the story i think that we can point to in a moment but for me this type of setup this type of case there's nothing for anyone to solve because it was solved before we got there. And the solution lies in a notebook that we can't read. And so for me, this story just, um, who's doing any work here, really? <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, this story felt more like a vehicle for Blackwood to write uh, about math and and about spirituality without a whole lot of plot really happening here. Which, look, I'm not opposed to that as a uh, both a reader and a writer. Plot is usually actually the thing I'm least interested in, which is, I think, certainly why I don't sell a lot of stories. But uh, <laughs> I think this one was even lighter than I normally care for uh, there. But you can see the building blocks here, right? I mean, we have done two of these John Silent stories. Now, I've read a third that we haven't covered it together. But uh, I've not read all of them, but uh, someday we will, I guess, eventually, you know, as the show goes on. But, you know, these two stories that we've covered on the show, I mean, definitely show this as the building blocks, as the foundation, really, for, uh, you know, how we get to things like, uh, well, yeah, like the Friday the 13th show you're talking about, or the one I always bring up, Angel, right? Like, we, you know, this is the foundation for that. And it's cool. It's cool to check it out. It is. It's a lot of fun. And and I want to address some of, you know, what we've been talking about to, to apply it to this story. You know, I want to address the way this story sets itself up as a classic bit of detective writing, at least in the vein of, as, as we've been talking about, that aristocratic detective. But then the resulting story is an essentially an interview that's really more about world building than it is about a case. I mean, this story is really about telling us about the supernatural world and the pitfalls of going too deep into it more than it is about a mystery that needs cracking. And yeah, we will talk about the narrative purpose of some of these story elements and world building stuff, but I'd I'd really just like to dig deep uh, into the raison d'etre of the story, which is this is ostensibly a kind of detective story where the case is solved without ever leaving the interview and where the audience is never given details about the problem solution other than in this case, something like uh, you've got to block the passages, Um, you know, spoken somewhat excitedly or frantically as this person is disappearing and it will end up in India. And so first of all, what's your reaction to that? I think we've kind of talked about our reaction to this a little bit, but why doesn't this work for our storytelling tastes today? And I and I think it's not just because of um, the way you know hard boiled detective stories have influenced so many of the way we tell detective stories. But why why doesn't this work for our modern? tastes as contemporary readers. One of the things I would point to here is even just the language that we're using, the vocabulary that we're using to describe or label, really, what type of story this is, right? We're calling it a detective story. We did not invent that label, and we certainly did not invent the label occult detective, right? These are labels that we are using that uh, are just common in the, the discourse about stories. But another label for detective stories, or a label that encompasses detective stories, is crime fiction, right? And well, there's no crime here. There's no crime in this story, right? This is someone who has just been doing too much math and had a kind of accident from doing too much math and needs some help. And so I think that's really part of where this is unsatisfying to me as an occult detective story, right? If, if we're going to put that label on this story, I'm looking for a bit of crime. I'm looking for a kind of adversary here, right? Someone, you know, a criminal who needs to be caught in some in some way. And, you know, I do, that's not going to be a feature of all of the stories that we cover. In fact, it might not be a feature of most of the stories that we cover. But uh, it's certainly, in terms of approaching this genre from the perspective of detective stories, that's a huge thing that's missing here in terms of driving the driving a plot and giving us a sense of of resolution and and something to overcome an obstacle to overcome yeah one one thing i noticed and i noticed it because it's uh some 
advice that you've given me when when reading some early stories that I've written is, you know, that this story is about the wrong protagonist. You know, like you, it seems like, and it, like you've told me this with early stories. Like it seems like you wanted to tell this story, but you put this detective in here, and it's not actually about him solving the case. This is the story you want to tell, and and that's the feeling I get from this story as well. Blackwood had a story he wanted to tell. And this story would have been much more interesting with an active protagonist who maybe that would have been Mudge, who we see some of his experiences before coming to silence. And then when he comes to silence's case in the house in the third act, we're ready to solve the case and have a resolution to what's been going on with this desperate man who has not only seen the fourth dimension, but the horrors in the other dimensional spaces and then getting advice from silence. Like, well, maybe just leave your material body behind and go exploring. Um, that's a bad one. Right. And we have, I don't know. We have heroes like this in the pulp era. Like, uh, is it Buck Rogers? I don't know whose travels in these other dimensions. And, and there are so many opportunities Blackwood, have. Blackwood could have taken to just uh, zhuzh this story a little bit to give us an active protagonist. But you just didn't do that when you have a uh, an iconic detective that you're telling stories from the perspective from until you're Agatha Christie writing the murder of Ro- uh, the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Yeah, this is exactly right, Brandon. I mean, I think we could. Well, one, yeah, we could punch this up a little bit and maybe we'll talk about that. But I do, just in Blackwood's defense, want to say here that I think this is a particular problem with this story because this certainly was not a problem with a, a psychical invasion, right? That, pro- that that story was totally about John Silence. He was active in that investigation. He had to go to uh, the, the the scene of the the crime, essentially, and it, it, you know, solve the, the mystery of why is this house haunted and how do I protect the person who's being haunted in this house, right? And that, I think, was an amazing, an amazing story. This one may be, I mean, it is the last John Silence story. It might just be the case that Blackwood had kind of lost interest in writing John Silence stories at this point. But I think to solve the problem you're pointing to, you just would go back to the same gimmick that he uses in A Psychical Invasion and just have someone in Mudge's life realize that Mudge is gone and come to John Silence for help, right? And now there's a mystery that John Silence has to actually solve. What happened to Mudge? Oh, okay. Well, I figured out what happened to Mudge. And it turns out, it's a good thing I figured this out because I know all about blocking the entrances and so I can help him. But of course, getting to him now where he's where he's gone into higher space is also going to require some other type of difficulty. And so, you know, you can solve the case part of it and then transition into this plot where now I need to rescue this person that has another set of obstacles. So this could have been a much bigger story in which silence is actually having not just one, but two obstacles to overcome and putting two different sets of of skills to use there. And I would have, I think that was a story that would have been highly successful. And, and in fact, I think Gene Wolfe solved all of these problems in his story, The Rubber Bent, which is also about math gone wrong and people disappearing and the need to block passages, I suppose. And he nailed it, right? So we do <laughs> actually do have a version of the story that suits our like our contemporary tastes a lot more. And I encourage our listeners uh, to go check out that story in that episode that we that we covered that story on, because I think Wolfe, I don't know, I don't know if you read this story or not, but he it seems as though the core of the ideas are there in uh, his use of some of these 
tropes for his own uh, pastiche of the detective story, including things involving math gone wrong. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think the Gene Wolfe story, the rubber band, is really kind of the story that I wanted this this story to be. <laughs> or, you know, the other solution to what you've pointed out here, Brandon, is, of course, to just not make it an occult detective story at all, to jettison John Silence from this story and just write the story of Mudge doing his his supernatural math, which is what Lovecraft does, right? Lovecraft would totally just have jettisoned the the supernatural detective or the occult detective part and just focus on the the math part. Although, you know, I suppose that there's a, a, a reading of Dreams in the Witch House that is actually to treat it as a kind of detective story. And we're not doing that story as part of this series, but eventually we will read that story. And that might be a fun way to approach that story. Although, well, now I'm making this episode about a story we haven't even <laughs> <laughs> well, we have only one more thing that I have on, on the docket for today to talk about, and that's the world building of this story. I think, you know, based on what we see in occult detective stories or series, that, I mean, what we talked about earlier was kind of a consistent world or a world that gets built out. And this is the second silent story we've read. It's the last one that Blackwood wrote. We've read the first story that included sensitive animals and ghosts being a part of the world, but they don't really feature into this story. Rather, we have uh, something of a more scientific edge to it and um, no animals. What happened to his dog and cat? I don't know. But given that this story is in some way, I think, about the world that silence inhabits, because the resolution of this story relies upon our belief that silence moves through this world with uh, great experience and deafness. How then has this world of giant silence evolved since the first story? Now we haven't tracked the steps of it. Hopefully we'll be able to do that, but how is this world different or evolved since that first story? And what is the world that John silence moves in that we need to understand silence's being an experienced navigator of that world in order for the story to work. Well, the way that silence is introduced to us in a psychical invasion is that he, well, one, he comes from money, so he doesn't need to work for a living, and he wants to use his wealth to help other people. And what it is that makes him a doctor is that he is akin to a medical doctor, except that what he is, is a spiritual doctor, right? That there are plenty of doctors who can take care of your body, but it's it's not only afflictions of the body that can bring harm to us. There are real afflictions of the soul as a, a, an essential part of our being that can cause us harm and he's going to help people by focusing on that so he's you know a, a, an sd as opposed to an md that's what we're told in the first story and that then launches him into fighting an evil presence in a haunted house to save the people who live there which is super cool here though it does seem right that blackwood has as we've said left behind the mystery elements the detecting elements here and just really made silence a, a doctor. He's, this is just kind of a doctor's office he's got at his house. So like if you've got some kind of, you know, spiritual ailment, like, hey, maybe you're vanishing into the fourth dimension from time to time, or, you know, anytime you hear Wagner or whatever, whatever it is, um, <laughs> this is the doctor. This is the type of doctor you go to. And and that's it. So this really feels more like someone seeing patients, like a doctor seeing a patient than it does feel like a, a detective seeing clients who need help solving a, a, a mystery. And so in terms of 
maybe that's less world building and more genre building, but it, I think, has the world building consequence of making it feel a little more mundane, actually, than the first story did, where it felt like, cool, this is a world that has ghosts in haunted houses that are super real. What else? What are, what are we going to get next? And And I will say that we do get, like, some really cool supernatural stuff in other John Silence stories. This one seems to have uh, you know, walked away from all of that. Yeah, this this does kind of seem like a farewell story to some degree. That's like, I'm, I'm kind of done writing these. Just looking at the table of contents in the book that we've read this story from, which is the uh, complete John Silence stories published by Dover Press. Uh, th- this is the shortest story. Other stories are... 60 pages, 70 pages, 50 pages. And so, yeah, maybe Blackwood didn't want to fall into a certain kind of trap of writing this character when he had other things he was interested in writing. So we'll be exploring more Blackwood on this podcast network, to be sure. We'll probably do more John Silent stories. Uh, there's still no Kierkegaard here, as far as I can tell. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I think I think you're right, Glenn, that, that this, this story really pairs down all the stuff we learn about silence from the first story. And maybe it feels kind of like the winding down of a, of a literary universe to some degree that just shrinking what could have been possible and just saying, this guy's just going to see people in his house. He doesn't have pets anymore. Do you really want stories like that? Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't think so. I'm going to move on as a writer. <laughs> and so yeah, that that's kind of how it feels uh, as a reader of this story, especially when compared with the first story. And so on that note, that is going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia to help us select our themes for next year. And I think we were a little hard on Algernon Blackwood here, but we love Algernon Blackwood. We loved that first John Silence story. We've uh, also done another story by Blackwood that we really loved. But what really matters is that we have not yet done the type of story that I think makes Blackwood the most famous today in the 21st century, which is to say his wilderness horror, which is what I go to Blackwood for. Blackwood is one of my favorite writers because of that. And if you join us on Patreon now, you will be helping us reach our goal of doing a bonus series there on Blackwood's masterpiece, The Willows. So if you came here for Blackwood, that's a that's a way you can get some more Blackwood discussion from us. But here on Elder Sign, we will be back next time with a pair of commissioned episodes on A Dead Gin in Cairo by P. Jelly Clark. And then after that, we're going to have our first installment in the second of 2023's themes, which is The Library of Babel by Jorge Luis Borges. Very excited about that. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>